0: podcast series. Today, our very own Brad Johnson and Dr. John Hall sit down with the president of the University of Maryland Global Campus, Dr. Gregory Fowler, to discuss his thoughts on higher education for students, what is student success, and how UMGC is positioning students for the future while meeting the students' needs around the world. From there, they dive into what shaped the president's path to education, what UMGC is doing to help transform students, and ends with what were his first records he ever owned in his youth, which are truly iconic songs of the 80s. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe and share. Hello,
1: everybody. This is Brad Johnson and welcome to the Plexus podcast series. Uh, today, I am so excited to have Dr. Gregory Fowler, the president of the University of Maryland Global Campus. Greg, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, how are things with you? Oh, things couldn't be better. I'll tell you, it's, it's an interesting time today, isn't it?
2: It is very much so.
1: So let's go ahead and start off. Um, I'd love to get your take on the recent acquisition so, 2U acquired edX, and I'd love to get your thoughts on how you see that impacting education, um, possibly impacting um, UMGC.
2: So, um, first of all, I think that what you see both with the rise of companies like Coursera um, and the work that 2U edX are all doing is you're seeing a different need and a different model of higher education learning experiences. And what you begin to find is that the popularity of those things are once again, they're meeting students where they are. Um, And for many of those students, what they're looking for is a clearly defined set of what I call case ads, knowledge, skills, abilities, and dispositions. Um, that give them some leg up in whatever they're trying to do. Most of them, of course, are trying to either get a new job, uh, change jobs, uh, get a raise or get a promotion, but they aren't necessarily looking for what we have seen as a sort of holistic credential that was a degree, even an associate's degree anymore. So um, I think that with a Coursera and an edX, Um, They allow some of that um, ability to happen in very short order um, for people who are trying to get them. You see the merger of those as once again, the need for, in many of these cases, to create a functional business model that's going to go along with the work and the the demand in these types of areas. So a lot of this work with edX has certainly been in the nonprofit space and what you begin to see are some of the institutions that were tied to that work, um, having some concerns about that. Um, I feel really that what we've got to really be most focused on is what's the right thing to do for the student, regardless of where that learning experience is coming from. So what we'll be keeping an eye on is how do we see edX and Coursera mirroring the needs and demand that the students will have moving forward. And if that helps, then I think that it'll be a success. If that's not what's at the forefront of it, then you begin to have bigger challenges in front of you. But the immediate conversation, I think, really has to be around what's the right thing to do for the student and are they fulfilling a demand that others for any number of reasons have not successfully fulfilled in the past?
1: Well, and, and you bring up a, a really good point about uh, you know, what's in it for the student. How do, how do you define student success?
2: So um, I say to this team, uh, there, there are sort of two big questions and I just sort of hinted at the first of them, which is, are we clear about the knowledge, skills, abilities and dispositions? that we are putting into the learning experiences that we're putting out there for our students. You know, for a very long period of time, higher education has been this sort of black box that um, has not resulted in students always knowing what they are getting um, it has been, I don't know why I've got to go to college, but I knew I've got to go to be successful. And you begin to see that playing out in a sort of national conversation around things like, what is the value of college? Is college really worth it? Um, and if it were very clear to people what the value add was, if it were very clear what the skills were that they were getting out of it, then I don't think people be asking that question. So I think one of the big challenges for us is to make sure we define success first and foremost by saying here are the knowledge, skills, abilities, dispositions that any given experience that we're talking about, uh, will provide for a learner who's coming to us for success. The second part of that is answering a very simple question that anytime there is a transaction of sorts, you probably are asking, which is, did I get what I came here for? Um, and this is one of the questions that goes back to the whole idea of being student centered. If a student is being able, if a student is coming to us for something, Are we clearly able to define how we are giving that to the student? And are we holding ourselves accountable at the end of those experiences for making sure they have that? So I tell my team on a regular basis, whether we're talking a program, whether we're talking a single class session, whether we're talking a chapter in a book, anytime that a student gets into those types of experiences, we need to make sure that we're telling them, here's why what you're doing leads to where you want to go. Um, And at the end of it, being willing to say, did we or did we not do that? And if not, how do we get better at doing that? So success for me is making sure we can do those two things, clearly define what we're trying to do here and answer the question of do we give the students what they came here for?
1: That's great. And so so how, how does UMGC put students in the best position for the future, especially considering there's a lot of jobs that may not have even been created yet? So what does what that look like? What do you tell a student um, as far as that's concerned?
2: Well, I, I certainly think, again, going back to that clear definition of what we are doing and how it matters to them. But I think that the secret for the future success of any institution is not going to be rocket science. It's going to be something that we have not always been good at in higher education. And that is we've got to get much better at listening um, and having a much better sense of the user experience, the learner experience, how what we intend to do may or may not be what we're actually doing in the end. So my first job, my job in college was um, I worked at Six Flags for a period of time in, in Atlanta, Georgia. And it was always fascinating to see how they would try to design the park and how they try to, you know, predict how people were going to act. Do we put the roller coaster here? Do we put the new restaurant over here? And if we put it here, what are people going to do? And of course, the minute the gates open, people do exactly what you didn't think they were going to do. Um, And what that gave the opportunity for these uh, Six Flags to do was say, how are students or how are are, our guests in the park at the time, how are they responding? Um, Are they doing those things that we thought? If not, how do we redesign or change our expectations? I think higher education has to get good at doing that. Having a much better deliberate intentional design for the experiences we're putting in front of people and saying, okay, If we are scaffolding experiences, you know, stackability is a big thing right now in higher education. Um, If we are stacking these things with the intention that A will lead to B will ultimately lead to some ultimate goal, is that what's happening? Um, And so one of the things I did recently at um, my, my previous job was we spent some time in something called the user experience lab, where we basically sat down with the learner experience, the navigation in front of them, and said, we intended for the student to go here first, there second. We intended for them to be able to answer these questions at this time can they do those things? And if they couldn't then come back and say, well, is what they're doing actually better? Um, And can we learn from that? And if it's not being successful, how do we go about changing that? So I think that success in the future will depend upon our ability to be less about the sage on the stage model less about the the Moses coming to the mountain and more about the ability of us to go to the student and understand The, the uniqueness. And one of the things I love so much about UMGC is that for 75 years, we have met students where they were and i mean that both geographically as well as conceptually i mean we, if you look at a lot of our early days you're talking about faculty members going to germany going to korea going to places around the world not going to be in a classroom but sometimes i'm sitting here in my office and i have pictures around me of soldiers sitting on a beach uh in a socratic circle um, I, where they're learning or soldiers sitting on tanks with books um, uh, soldiers walking, you know, in the desert, in the jungle, in tents sometimes, all of these types of different environments. And you had to be able to think about how do I meet these students where they are? That will continue, I think, to be a big leveraging point. If we can master that, then we'll be successful.
3: What what are some of the things I I really like what you said about listening to students? It's it's a basic concept, but something that that is easily forgotten in higher ed. What are some of the things you recently learned um, that that were, were kind of fascinating or things you we weren't expecting
2: uh, enlisting the students? So, so I think that one of the things we see, and this goes not only to my work here, but before this, I was at the New England Commission for Higher Education. And we were, during the early days of the pandemic, Um, we began to hear very much from people the different types of experiences they were trying to craft for students. So when people talk about remote education as opposed to online education, and I'm actually a proponent of that because I'm not a fan of the idea that what people did in March and April of last year was clearly designed experiences. I often compare it to what I say is like trying to learn to swim in the middle of a flood. These people are not gonna be Olympic swimmers. They're just trying to keep their heads above water. So a risk (laughs) mitigation strategy It's not a deliberately designed strategy for online. So when you begin to talk to them about the expectations, you begin to hear things like, oh, wait a minute, Uh, 20 minute long, 30 minute long videos where we stand in front of the camera and talk to students may not be the most effective way to um, listen to them. As we know, generally speaking, after about eight minutes on any video, um, you're going to run out of the attention span of most people. So how do I give them little chunks of knowledge um, or as things that they're trying to do. One of the things we're hearing a lot about are the things that people both like and don't like about the experience that they have been having. So will give you a couple of examples of that. What I'm hearing from some colleagues are, hey, our students, even the 18 to 22 year olds who are trying to come in for that coming of age experience, love the agility of being able to listen to their um, professor and have a chat room open on the side where they're able to feed information into it. They love the idea of these sort of short videos where they can actually stop, go back and play it over again and hear if that's what they actually thought they were hearing and, and learn through a process that allows them to have more control over those types of experiences. So what you begin to see is that willingness to take on um, you know, sovereignty of their learning in some types of ways. That means, of course, that the higher education institution has to be willing to give up some of that sovereignty. Um, it doesn't mean that everybody coming out of this is going to want to go into an online experience, but I do believe what you're going to find is that the higher education experience is permanently changed in ways that won't let it go back to what it was before. One of the things I talk a lot about is what I call this sort of um, music comparison of what I think higher education is going through. And for those, I don't know how old you guys are, but when I was younger, we had of course uh, phonographs or records that turned into cassettes that then turned into CDs. And people thought, well, CDs is sort of the pinnacle of it. You get this crystal clear sound. Now, now I still, um, having been a DJ for a little period in my life, love the sound of records, but uh, you did have that single one size fits all package. Um, but the problem was, and all of you know this, if you had Tower Records or, you know, uh, media Player, these others, if you liked only a song or two songs, you still had to pay the $15.99 to buy the whole thing. Uh-huh. Um, and But what you saw happen after that was the beginning of something you, with Napster. Many of you may remember Napster and the whole story yeah. around, I think it was Sean Bannon who got sued by the music industry. Um, and after they won the lawsuit, people were like, well, what happens next? But you knew it wasn't gonna go back to what it was. And so it was only a matter of months before you began to see things like iTunes and iTunes eventually turned into Spotify. So you have all these various options. I think that's where higher education is going more and more. So when you talk about an edX or a Coursera, when you talk about some of these other experiences, what you're really talking about is I just want to be able to download the one song where I want to be able to pair these songs in a way that create the package that I need. Just like you can do a playlist with music and say, this is for the gym. This is for the long drive to my parents' house with, um, with a Coursera or an edX or with these stackable experiences we're looking at in higher education here you're able to say, don't need all of that, but I need this little thing. And if we've done the job right, what you're going to find is they're going to realize that they're going to need something else eventually again, just like you need another playlist um, for something else. You may come back in three years and say, wait a minute, I had accounting and now I need to do managerial accounting as opposed to financial, um, but I need to do it in stacks. So education adapting to that is really going to be the big piece, I believe.
3: I I think you're absolutely right. Um, The interesting thing for me is, how does higher education adapt to that? I mean, the music industry, if you told them in the year 2000 that this is, you know, where we're going to be in 2021, 20, um, they would have freaked. Um, yes. And I, I suspect higher ed is going through that same uh, dilemma. So how does that get adopted? Um, and do you see it re- really being adopted in a, in a way that doesn't involve some significant shakeout
2: um, of the players in higher ed? So I think that what you see is this sort of pandemic forced moment um, will require the adaptation uh, of a number of the tools that you will see. now. And I and I want to be very cautious here in how I frame this, because I'm not saying that the traditional higher education experience that we're talking about is going to disappear. I know some people think it's the end of the world. I am a firm believer in the 18 to 22-year-old coming-of-age coming of experience will be with us In the perpetuity, because it serves a particular purpose in society. The question, of course, is what are the various roles and what are the various missions that higher education institutions are trying to serve and are people good at that? Which ones are good at which things? In the same way that HBCUs, I went to Morehouse, um, serve a specific purpose in the same way that some of the Ivy League schools serve a particular purpose, tier one research institutions serve a specific purpose. But for that group of people who are trying to educate the uh, adult or non-traditional learner, For that group of people who are dealing with 18 to 22-year-olds who are trying to look for something that may not be the four-year experience, I think more and more what you've got to see is the adaptation of those tools and the evolution of what they believe they are doing. That's really the hard part. I I mentioned earlier this idea of sovereignty and the willingness of higher education to say, I'm not going to be that one person standing in front of the room giving the lecture, um, but we're going to give more of that power and responsibility to the students, and are we willing to give that up? are we willing to look into the mirror and see this is really what they're wanting from us. So this is, there's a difference between what you may be selling and what people may be buying um, from you and higher education has not always been good um, at, at hearing that my, my mentor and colleague, uh, rest his soul, Clayton Christensen talked about disruptive innovation um, and Michael Horns, uh, his, his uh, protege is one of the people who talks about it a lot now, but when they talk about what's the job they're hiring you to do, It's a very different question than what's the job you want to do. Um, And students may be hiring us to do things that are very different than what we think they're doing. And you see that playing out in some of the portfolio of different colleges, what programs they choose to have, which programs they don't choose to have, um, how they teach it, all those types of things. So I think it's going to be um, a two-step forward, half-step back type of progress for a while for that evolution.
1: How do you make sure that a student is, is prepared and will be successful as they, as they enter um, a degree?
2: I think I go back to that first question of, are we starting with listening? Um, most of the reasons that students aren't successful have very little to do with content. Um, most of the reasons that they don't succeed have to do with life happens. And we see this happening across the board, whether it is, and we certainly see this in the online environment, but I see it even on campuses, the student affairs, the student activities, um, whatever that department is, is often seen as at odds with the academic affairs team, when in fact they're both together symbiotically trying to work towards helping that student be successful when they work right. Um, So I think the first question they have to ask themselves are things like, what are the goals of the student? What motivates the student? And you you begin to see people trying to uh, hear that. The hard part is really adapting to that. It's one thing to say, "Okay, fundamentally, I recognize that this student is only going to be on campus this amount of time, that this this is going to be the third highest priority that they have after family and work. Um, And so these types of questions and being able to hear the answers to them and then being able to pivot or frame an experience that works for them is going to be the hard part. So to answer this question of how do we determine that, I think we start again by by listening and understanding what they are telling us about what their priorities are. Um, In many of these cases, students don't know what they don't know. Um, And they are trusting us to give them a lot of the answers but not always knowing what's in that black box that is education. I would, I submit when I was teaching that if you um, asked at any given time, the 18 year olds who were in my class, why are you here? They are, they're there because I was told to be here, not because they know exactly what they're supposed to be getting out of it. And at the end of it, it's like, they assume that the credential is um, you know, has given them something but they don't always know what it is. And you can see that sometimes when they go and apply for a job and they're getting through the interview and you try to ask them, what do you know, what have you learned? And they can't vocalize it because it has not been explicitly um, told to them. They know they got something, they certainly know they got debt, um, so how do we make sure that that's tied to some clear um, thing that they can actually vocalize and move forward with so I, it really again goes back to tying that conversation to the student and their goals and listening to them and saying, Okay, you came here for this. Did we give it to you or not. Um, that that really is the fundamental question that I don't think higher education is often really willing to answer in any other way than saying this is what we're doing because we've been doing it this way for an X amount of years.
1: Right. So who who shaped you? I mean, let's talk a little bit about your background and then your path. You know, why why education? Um, you know, and, and who shaped your
2: vocation? Good question. Um it's I, I mean, I think we're all the sum of a number of the people who we meet in our lives. But my, my background started with um, in the church. To be absolutely honest with you, um, and I grew up in a church where we spent a lot of time in church. Um, and when I say a lot of time, I meant sometimes seven days a week. Um, but I, while we were there, I spent a lot of time asking a lot of questions about the things that um, either made sense to me or didn't make sense to me. But I was always taught to, you know, ask questions. Um, about this. And so um, I've been doing that for a long period of time. If we're making this case, or if we're making this argument, what does that ultimately mean? Um, that certainly followed me on through when I first started my college career, right after college, I started my first real job, not Six Flags. Now we're talking about right, my first real job after that, which was at the National Endowment for the Humanities. And um, that's here in Washington, DC. And there, the first job I had, there was an outreach specialist. Uh, And the work we were doing was trying to make voices that had not been heard part of the conversation. How do you go about uh, working with minority populations, rural populations, populations in places that are like tribal reservations in the middle of nowhere, um, and uh, that you say, we want to make sure your voice is part of the conversation. Um, and yes, there are funds out there that are available to make sure that we can preserve the things that you want through the preservation of museums program or that we can do research. Um, but your voice needs to be a part of that conversation. That's really stuck with me throughout all of my um, higher education career. And in a lot of ways it's very much what's at the center of a lot of my thinking about this right now. We're, we're talking about online education, which inherently means you're talking about technology. Um, and technology is not the end all. It's certainly not the, the point of all of this. It's really a vehicle. But if the vehicle um, gets too complex, you end up doing exactly the opposite of some of the things we want to do. So we're talking about diversity, equity and inclusion. Um, if we are building technology experiences that are so far distant from the people who can afford them or who have the bandwidth to do them or the tools or the resources to do them, we're actually being counterproductive in the work we're trying to do. So my work has really always been around how do you empower those people whose voices have not been a part of that conversation? How do you make sure that they are able to ask questions and dig into the information that they need to in a way that allows them to change their lives? When, when I was in college, of course, this this was back when you had to do research by going to um, the stacks of you know library card catalogs and the archives. Uh, our problem in higher education today is not a lack of information. That is not our problem. Uh, we have more information than we can do anything with. Our challenge is really to try to help. Decipher what information is going to shape the, the reality and the history and the the things that we are trying to do, and how that shapes the democracy or the, whatever community we're trying to live in around the world. So those are some of the big challenges that I think are out there that I'm trying to be a part of. I believe if we do those things, then we empower people to impact their lives and their families' lives and the communities around them.
1: Right. So we, we've
3: lost a uh, we've lost a lot of at risk and underserved students over the last uh, year and a half specifically with with the pandemic, but it was even going on before that. Mm-hmm. Um, what is your institution doing uh, to try to attract those students back into their educational journey, um, especially with all the loss uh, you know that, that's taken place? And that's especially true with non-traditional students Um, and and underserved populations specifically.
2: Well, I think one of the things we've got to do is have a clear understanding of a number of the factors that have caused students to either not attend at all or to not return to attending um, the experiences that they're trying to have. I, I always start with this. Many of the students who come to us, come to us having not been successful elsewhere. In many cases, having not been successful elsewhere multiple times. Um, So they come with all of the anxieties and the fears and the uncertainties at the same time as they are motivated to try to change things for themselves and their families. Um, So being able to have an understanding and the support mechanisms in place that say, again, when you struggle, here's how we are going to be different. So and to recognize and frame this in a way that does acknowledge that they are going to struggle. Um, I'm a big fan of we talk a lot about the transformative power of education transformation by definition means you don't start up where you're planning to end up. And how do we train our systems to say, our students aren't where they need to be yet. The people who are interested in us aren't where they need to be yet. So how do we meet them there and nurture them through this process? The first time that they fail an assignment, what are we going to do? It's one of the questions I ask the faculty on a regular basis, how we respond at that moment may be the big fork in the road that tells whether they succeed or fail here. Um, have we set them up for the fact that we know you're not always going to get perfect grades. Um, And we are here to work with you through those periods of time because all of us have been there too. So I I think part of that is empathy um, and making sure that we put ourselves in their shoes. And again, going back to listening, but another part of that is being explicit about the support services that are going to be there to help them through those periods of time, because all of us right now are dealing with all the anxieties of the, the, the pandemic. Uh, And all of the various scenarios and situations that come with that. Um, Some of us are dealing with our children. Some of us are dealing with our parents. Some of us are dealing with both. um, And and, and trying to make sure we say, here's how we're going to help you through this. Because time, while it may feel like it stood still, has really kept going. And for a lot of the the, the people we're talking about, you know, money is still an issue. Um, and life is still an issue, and how do we, life has not stopped for them, even though it feels like it's slowed down, so uh, we've got to figure out a way to, to approach that and say, we are going to be here to support you through this next phase. Giving them that type of support at least gives them a starting place. Absolutely. So it's, it's
3: July 2031. What, where is your institution? What is that key differentiator that, that um, makes you different
2: ten years from now. So what I what I see happening for us, and one of the things that I feel again is a strength that we can leverage is our one hundred and seventy seven locations plus around the world, um, and. Um, being able to hear and diversify our portfolio as a result of operating in all these places, trying to operate with different types of student populations, um, and figuring out, again, how do we serve those students best? So a big challenge in front of us is making sure we are doing a better job of leveraging our presence in all of these communities to listen and to provide for those communities the things that they need. Um, A huge part of our population I see 10 years from now all going well. will continue to be the military. Um, the military will continue to move people around the globe. And as a result, we've got to be good about if uh, we have a student, whether it's a soldier, a soldier's spouse, a soldier's child, who is today in Fort Hood, who will be tomorrow in Germany, well not tomorrow, but who, who in six months will be in Germany, and a year or so will be in Korea, How do we go with that student wherever they are so that it's seamless for their experience? And if we can learn how they are, if we can get good at that, then we can also get good at meeting students wherever they are. When we talk about the global campus, someone asked me earlier today, global campus may mean presence everywhere. And it's like, it's not so much about where we are, but where our students want to go. So if our students, whether they are today saying, I wanna be in Manhattan, um, New York, or Manhattan, Kansas, um, we can actually be there for both of you. And if today you're trying to do a micro-credential and tomorrow you're trying to do a degree and the next day you're just trying to get a certificate and something, we should be able to say, how do we do all of those things? So mastering the agility to do those types of things and changing the culture to such an extent that when people do those types of things, we move um, and we have the willingness to move. So this is not so much change management of change management is A to B. This is change management as a sort of constant dynamic thing that will be constant moving forward. And so how do we build that into what we're trying to do is going to be, I think the secret to what I see is our success in 10 years.
3: That makes sense. You're definitely on to something with that. And that's very unique for higher ed. So I, I commend you on seeing that path and, and being very innovative towards it. And, it really seems everything I know about your institution. It's it's what it's what your institution has done. It's it's your legacy is really being able to connect with students, be with them, and remove the barriers.
2: Uh, yeah, to a quality yeah. education. Yeah, I see it as in some ways the return to our roots. Um, this is where we started years ago, trying to figure out how to make this work for our soldiers and other students who couldn't go do this normal traditional thing. So we've got to continue doing exactly that and being. Uh, being who we are and not trying to be something else.
1: Now, how are you able to manage as many students as you do? How big is how big is the uh, the administration and the personnel to support that volume of students?
2: Uh, see now you've got to get me with a question that I don't know the All exact right. answer <laughs> to off the top of my head to be I honest with you. It, it is it is uh, it is a couple thousand, several thousand actually, around the globe. Um, and it is all types of different experiences as well. So it's really quite a lot of fun here to hear um, just various things that are going on. Give you an example. Um, I was uh, just reading some of the reports that come in and came across a program that we have in Japan where we are working or we are teaching English to Japanese citizens um, who live near the base that we are um, stationed on over there. Awesome. I had no idea we were doing that at the time, but it's like all of a sudden some, a new opportunity in the area has arisen and the local population, the local organization has taken advantage of it. So um, in times like this, especially so much is happening around the globe um, and we have to be very much aware of it, that we have to keep a team of people who are agile enough to move but also sort of have that, that, that station space wherever we need to to sort of anchor the things we're trying to do. So it is a couple, a couple thousand, but I, again, go back to that idea of the culture has gotta be the big thing. Um, and it doesn't matter whether you're here or South Korea or Guam or Germany or uh, anywhere else that we're located, um, trying to make sure everybody feels that first commitment to meeting students where they are um, and making sure that are we listening and are we learning um, in a way that allows us to adapt and evolve. And it doesn't need to be the same thing everywhere, um, but it does need to be there are certain consistent truths. And one of them is we start with the student, we end with the student and everything in between is what's right for the student.
1: What's the biggest change that you made during the pandemic?
2: Ah. Uh, But again, that goes back to the complexity of the organization. I think one of the big ones is uh, a lot of our soldiers who are in hybrid experiences around the globe. A lot of people think of us as online, but remember on a lot of these uh, bases um, around the world, we are doing hybrid experiences. uh, Trying to actually think about that and and letting those soldiers go home and adapting those experiences was certainly a big one. Um, I think the biggest one is continuing to be that sort of reflection of, how do we get better at what we're doing tomorrow than we are today so how do these new tools that we're looking at allow us to do some things that we couldn't do before example um one of the big challenges for us with our our faculty was how do we allow for the hundreds and thousands uh, of sections that are running at any given time, to have office hours, how to do study groups through Zoom and these other pieces. These are te- uh, technologies that we will be able to use moving forward that we hadn't even thought about using before. So trying to figure out what are those things that are going to allow us to continue moving forward that way is, is a culture that I'm trying to make sure we really thought about through and position us well at the front of the pack for what comes next. All
1: right. So now this will probably be the most challenging question that you're going to get. But you had mentioned vinyl CDs. I uh-huh. think John and I are that age too, where we we remember those that transition. What was the first record you ever you ever purchased?
2: Oh, so now remember, I came from a Pentecostal church. So um, when I was growing up, a lot of the music we listened to wasn't. We were only allowed to listen to gospel music. Um, and so I can tell you that I remember the first record that I ever purchased was a gospel record by a guy named Larno Harris. I can also tell you that the fir- that as I got older and went off to college and started listening to other music, Duran um, Duran's uh, Seven and the Ragged Tiger, The Reflex was a big one. Um, music during the night, late 83, 84, so everything from Footloose to Purple Rain to all of these were sort of the big ones for me. Um, Ghostbusters, you have to remember that, that, that those there are about two years there where music just, ex- Michael Jackson's Thriller, um, oh, yeah. that whole period just all of a sudden music exploded. So I don't remember which one I purchased first. I do remember listening to Duran Duran's The Reflex uh, at my cousin's house for the first time as a child, uh, but that was not my purchase. My first purchases were somewhere around that um, th- that period I was just talking about, Purple Rain, um, Footloose, uh, Ghostbusters, Thriller. Um, that period of time was probably my first of something that was non-Christian music. <laughs> Had thought about that one in a while, the reflex, wow. <laughs> back memories, absolutely. Yeah.
1: Well, excellent. Well, uh, I'll tell you, we really appreciate the time you've carved out for us today. We know that you were very busy. So thank you so much for spending time with, uh, with Plexus. Well,
3: and well thank you,
2: you uh, And uh, just congratulations on your continued success. Well, well thank you very much and again for the work you're doing with students and communities is again at the core of their success. So anything anything I can do to help more than willing to to work it with you. Thank you.
1: Excellent. Well, thanks again. We really appreciate it.
2: Thank you. You guys take it easy. Take care Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye.
0: We hope you enjoyed today's podcast with the University of Maryland Global Campus. You can also find us on these social media channels: on Instagram at plexusgram, that's p-l-e-x-u-s-s gram; on Twitter at plexus updates, p-l-e-x-u-s-s updates; on YouTube at plexus social media. We can also be found on Facebook at plexus. Thank you, and we hope you can join us on our next episode please remember to subscribe and share within your own network.